This edition of Your Hollywood Hustler was recorded on Friday, September the 18th, 2020. You can follow Tony and Kenny at Tony and Kenny on Twitter. And you can follow Kenny Smooth on Spotify with the Ryan Matter Band. This is part one of a two-part interview featuring legendary stand-up comedian Tom Dreesen. Tom has made over 500 appearances on national television, including The Johnny Carson Show, The David Letterman Show, and was the opening act for legendary singers Frank Sinatra and Smokey Robinson. You can purchase Tom Dreesen's books wherever books are available and on Amazon. Tim and Tom, an American comedy in black and white, with legendary actor Tim Reed, with Ron Rappaport, and Still Standing. My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra by Tom Dreesen, Darren Grubb, and Johnny Russo. Both available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. And you can follow Tom Dreesen or see what he's up to on TomDreesen.com. Enjoy the show, everyone. Somebody to stay during the for the whole show. <laughs> so far, not even the kangaroo left. So far, <laughs> and Margaret, big star, out. Robert Mitchum, kangaroo, even the kangaroo splits. Do you think our deodorant is failing or something, or what is it? Everybody comes and has something else important, like cleaning their bowling ball or something. I don't know. No, Tom Dreese is a funny young man, and he will be appearing with Tony Orlando in Latham, New York, from the July third to eighth, and in and in Wallingford, Connecticut, from the tenth to the fifteenth. And next Friday, he's going back to his hometown, which is Harvey, Illinois, for a baseball tournament. What they have named in his honor, which is not bad. Would you welcome Tom Dreesen? Tom Thank you. Thank you. I moved out here from Chicago about three and a half years ago. And one of the things I miss the most about Chicago, of course, are the sporting events, especially baseball. See, I think Chicago has the most loyal baseball fans in America. And the reason I say that is because it's easy to be a Yankee fan or a Cincinnati fan. You win the pennant once in a while. I'm a Cub fan. We've been waiting 33 years, right? And a fan isn't somebody who goes to a ballpark when the team is in first place. A fan is somebody who goes to Wrigley Field. Last game in September. The Cubs are 102 games out. And you think they still got a chance. Now, I've been there. 45 people in the ballpark, including both teams. The crowd was so intimate, instead of the national anthem, we sang feelings. <laughs> and the vendors are pathetic. I said to a guy, could I have a hot dog? He said, only got one. Just take a bite. <laughs> the worst was 1964. That's the year Jerry Bale had more hits than the Cubs. <laughs> My uncle was the number one sports fanatic in America. As a matter of fact, he went to 27 years of Cub games, never missed a game. And uh, when he died, he had it in his will. He didn't want to be buried. He wanted to be frozen so his buddies could continue to take him to all the games. Yeah, and they do. It makes my aunt mad. They use him to keep the beer cold. Who's got a kiss for me? Give me one and get back three. Who's got the action? Just lay it on the line. I'll bet you ten to one. 
That's ghetto talk, man. That's the way you talk in the hood. In the hood? The neighborhood. Just walk up here and repeat what I just said. Come on now, I'm waiting for the bus. Hey, baby. Look here, man. This way I catch big rag. I gotta slide up town and buy a bus. There's some alligators stuck in my traps. I'm gonna go crawl through the night with a hood on. No, Tom. Don't you ever crawl through a black neighborhood with a hood on. Oh, you know, uh, living the dream out here. 
Living the dream. Yeah, you look like uh, that they let you out of your cell. Just when you're in the yard now, just walking around, got to go back to the cell in about 20 minutes. Uh, 25, roughly, somewhere in that neighborhood. I put on a nice golf shirt, but I got to put the orange jumpsuit back on when I go back in. You know how it is. There you go. By the way, uh, where are you at right now? I'm, uh, I'm in the yard, but I got to go back to solitary after my hour is up for the day. I only get one hour of time. No, I mean, where are you at physically? Where are you physically, sir? I'm in the uh, 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 central New York area, a little village called Illion, New York, near uh, Utica. Oh, wow, yeah. I had a good buddy from Utica. I was in the, in the service with Dad. Bob Michaels was his name. He lived up in Utica. Yeah, it's a beautiful it's neck of the woods up here, I'm telling you. I can't wait for the leaves to start changing colors. It's going to be breathtaking. Oh, they're already starting now that I'm looking around. It's uh, ready. Spoke too soon. Spoke too soon there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to your Hollywood hustler. Uh, Kenny Smooth, myself, downtown Tony Brown, and we are with the legendary comedian Tom Dreesen. Uh, Tom Dreesen has been a He's been a comedian for over 50 years, oh, and and still robust, still strong, still with us. It's a, it's great to have you here today. Thanks, Tony. That was probably the worst introduction I've ever received, but I'm oh, totally grateful. <laughs> well, you know, after 50 years, you've heard everyone. You've heard every kind, I'm sure. Uh, I'm being facetious. What I always love is somebody will say, he's a legend or legendary, and someone, I try to explain to someone what a legend is. A legend is someone who's outlived all their critics. All the critics are dead. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so okay, you're a legend now, because everybody who hated you is now dead. But it's a joy to be with you guys. Thanks so much. I enjoy it. I've always noticed about uh, critics is they never make statues of critics, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or, 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 and rarely streets, really streets. Now, you know what, I gave Sinatra a line when I was touring with him that he got huge laughs with because coming from him, it was funnier. But he, he was always knocking the critics and the media. He was always very anti-media and press. And he, the line I gave him was, a critic is someone who comes in after the battle is over and shoots the wounded. And he did, he did that line, and he would get huge laughs. <laughs> That's what a critic is. You know, they come in after the battle is over and shoot the wounded, you know. Well said, well said, well said, Tom, by your proxy, uh, Mr. Sinatra. Uh, and before we get into even more Sinatra, I mean, let's, yes, let's talk about you. Uh, you it, it's, it's nice to say that I'm from Chicago like you. Uh, you're from, you're from uh, a suburb, Harvey, south suburb, uh, from, from nothing. I mean, I mean, you know, you could definitely take it from there and describe, you know, the play-by-play. -play, but, uh, wait, how many, how many siblings did you have? There were eight of us. Eight, and at, at, and for long stretches of time, five sleeping in one bed. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And we, Harvey is a suburb on the south side of Chicago. When I was growing up, it was a thriving little metropolis of steel mills and factories. I mean, maybe. 20 factories and they made everything from clutch plates to crankshafts. Mm -hmm. There were taverns, 36 taverns and all, you know, um, there were 36 churches. There was every ethnicity. It was a microcosm of America. Correct. And growing up, there was, uh, it, the, the, 
when I grew up there, it was all blue collar people. And the mantra in every neighborhood was, you only deserve in life what you work for. That's all you deserve in life. And so with eight brothers and sisters, my father was alcoholic. My mother was a bartender. And she, she drank a lot with him too. And so as an early age, I had my shoe shine box and I would go to all the taverns shining shoes. And I, I, I ended up, I sat in pins and bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner. I had a paper route. All of this to help feed my brothers and sisters. And none of this do I regret, by the way. It's, it's built character in me and helped me withstand some of the hardships of our show business careers, you know. But if I close my eyes, no matter where I'm at, no matter what I'm doing, no matter where I've been in my 51 years in show business, if I close my eyes, I see a little boy with a shine box trudging through the snow, going from tavern to tavern, on his hands and knees, trying to make enough money to help feed his brothers and sisters. And on all those jukeboxes and all those bars was Frank Sinatra singing. Mm-hmm. And... That's what my book is about, Still Standing. This is your cheap plug, and then we'll leave it alone. But this is my book. You probably can't see it, but Still Standing. We can see that. My journey from streets and saloons to the stage and Sinatra. Yes. And that's what the book is about. That little boy hearing Sinatra in a bar in Harvey, Illinois, when he was eight years old, and one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So I take you on that journey. And all the things that happen in between, all the fun things, all the heartaches, all the the uh, joys, the triumphs, and and the call still standing because I was a stand-up comedian for 51 years, but it's a double entendre. I've been knocked down a lot in my life. Mm-hmm. And if you read the book, I've been physically knocked down, but I kept getting back up. I kept getting back up. So thus, I'm still standing. How did how did you develop the gift of gab? I mean, and there are a lot of questions, you know, we can definitely ask, and we, we'll, we'll try to squeeze in, but, you know, for stage presence, all of that, I mean, how did you develop your gift of gab? Well, I think the gift of gab, my, my mother, I'm half Irish and half Italian, my mother, my Irish mother used to always say, he kissed the Blarney Stone, my Irish grandmother, I, I didn't know what that meant, <laughs> he kissed the Blarney Stone, as I got older, I realized it was somebody who had a gift of gab, you know. Uh, somebody that had a gift yeah. But I believe it developed when I was a little boy, shining shoes in all the bars. The last bar I would go to, there were eight in my neighborhood. The last bar that I would go to was Pulisi's Tavern. Frank Pulisi, my, my uh, mother's brother-in-law, my mother's sister's husband, owned that tavern. And he was my uncle, you know, through marriage. And uh, he owned the bar, and I'd go there last because my mother was a bartender there, and I'd wait for the shifts to change there, and then I'd go back out to all the bars again. But while I was there, he'd be behind the bar telling jokes. He was a great joke teller. He, he could do dialects and all that stuff. And it fascinated me that this guy, with his vocabulary, his, his, his vernacular, his inflection, at one moment, boom, could cause all the sound to come out of everybody's body. The sound of laughter that filled the room like electricity and united everybody. Everybody was doing that. It just fascinated me that he could do that, that he had this gift of gab, you know. And so I would tell a lot of his jokes that many should not be told on a Catholic school playground, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It developed there. Years later, as in my book, I find out that he was my biological father, that my mother had an affair with him and her sister's husband, and no one knew. No one knew. But I looked just like his sons, and I didn't look like my brothers and sisters. And um, the irony of all that is, is that I developed his gift of gab from him, but biologically, I was his son. You know, I, I, uh, my father will always be my father, Walter Dreesen, but 
years later, I had to confront him with this that I had. It's all in the book. Mm -hmm. And how I found out that I was half Italian, you know. But but it made sense as years go by that that I developed that from him. You know? Wow, that's that's quite the story you've got there already. Uh, I I got a question for you out the gate, since you're you're talking about the gift of gab and the ability to just go with <clears throat> the moment on a stage. I personally have conquered just about every stage except for stand-up comedy, which I'm very, very interested in doing and also, honestly, deathly afraid of for some reason. I think it's because I'd be good at it. What advice, what advice would you give for somebody in, say, my position who knows they'd kill at it but has to get through that you know you're going to bomb a few nights sort of fear? What, what would your advice be on pushing through that? Well, you know, everybody fears the first time you go on stage. First, let, let me back up on a story here. They did a survey around the world, uh, the insurance companies of America, for eight years. Mm -hmm. of the ten fears of man. Death was fourth. Pain was second. Mm -hmm. Getting up in front of an audience was the number one fear of mankind. If you can, if you can get up in front of an audience as a house painter or as a, as a, uh, a, a doctor or lawyer and talk about your craft or talk about life uh, for one hour, uh, you are in less than one percent of the population of the world. Of the world, if you can get up and make people laugh for one hour, you're in one millionth of one percent of the population of the world. You know that, that it's, it's it's a gift. Now, everybody who starts out in comedy, I mean, you, first of all, you all start out emulating another comedian, somebody that you know that was sex, sex, successful, and you say, well, that's the kind of comedian I like to be. You know, I'm a monologist or whatever. So you might get up there and you're doing an impression of that comedian that you like. I can look at a new comedian on an open mic night and say, oh, he likes Jerry Seinfeld, or he likes David Letterman, or he likes Jerry Leno. Uh, Rory, do I ever say he likes Tom Dreesen? Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, because, well, because, and by the way, I, I say that jokingly, but also because I like that, because I like to think that we're all unique. Mm -hmm. First of all, every human being on the planet is, there's never been anyone like you ever before. That no one's had your same parents, your same childhood. You're like this, like if they say there's no two snowflakes alike, you're like that. There's none like you ever, everyone on the stage. So you're unique when you go up there. But most people, when they first, whether you're a public speaker, doesn't have to be a comedian. Anybody who ever has to speak in front of an audience, the first thing they do, they start, when they're new at it, they start picturing what they're going to do, and they start thinking of negative things. Well, if this doesn't work, what if that doesn't work? And you ever notice when you do that, your hands start to sweat, your heart starts to pound, because the subconscious mind does not know the difference between truth or fiction. It only knows what you program into it. So if you program an image, and it only works off of images. A book was written years ago uh, called The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy that changed my life. But in it, it said, whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. Whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. And the subconscious mind works only off of images. Whatever the mind can see and believe. The conscious mind is, is a different matter. But so... When you start thinking about, oh, i got to give a talk next Friday, or i got to go on stage and, and do my first open mic night, you envision yourself, oh, what if this doesn't work? What if that doesn't work? And your heart starts pounding, your, your hands start sweating, because your subconscious mind just took a picture of that and, and said, okay, you're going to fail. I say, go cancel, cancel. See yourself up there having so much fun. You're really enjoying this moment. You're, you're, whether it's working or not, you love being up there. I always think the moment I walk on stage, the moment that light hits me, a column comes over me. Yeah. 
and I become this stand-up comedian that I love being. But I wasn't that way in the beginning. Like most of all, I was frightened. You know, I got to go on stage. You know, if I had to go on stage on a Friday and Monday, I was already sweating it. And then I started practicing these principles that I, these books that I had read, and I started seeing myself always doing well. The audience loving it, me loving it, having fun. And then after you do it, my mother had a saying, keep doing it, because my mother had a strange saying. She said, you can get used to hanging if you hang long enough. Oh. <laughs> <That's> an expression. <laughs> but, and yet, and yet true. It, yeah, yeah, I mean, true. Well, look, look, in our business, it's long game. There, yeah. I mean, she, she, she yeah. called it. The more you do it, the more come. Now, now, you may, I, I, Milton girl was a comedian 80 years, and every night before we went on stage, I thought he was going to wear his pants. He would, this, this, he would go through all the horrors and the tortures, but he'd get out there and kill. You know, so, I mean, we all go, we go through these people, but I look at it as a wonderful experience. I always say, I'm going out to have some fun. Now, here's my advice to you. It's, I, when I, I, can, I teach young comedians, I, I oftentimes at universities and at comedy clubs around America, I give a, a, a motivation talk called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. But I can teach you joke structure, I can teach you a lot of things, I can't teach you timing, you either have it or you don't, you know, but, but, um, and I can explain that later. But I tell you all young comedians, pretend it's this way here, okay? I, I say to you, Tony, um, your wife just says to you, we got 25 people in the living room. I don't have dinner ready. Oh, God, it won't be ready for 20 minutes. Tony, go, go tell them about growing up in Chicago. Go tell them about your neighbor and your mom and dad and the school you went to. Those funny stories you tell us all the time. So when you walk out on stage, you're walking out into your living room and say, dinner's going to be ready in a few minutes. But before, i got to tell you, when I was growing up in Chicago in the 1985, when the Bears, you, it's a conversation, not a presentation. Mm -hmm. Is it your act? you damn right it's your act. But it's your job to make it look like it's not an act. It's a conversation, not a presentation. I write that on the blackboard for the comedians. So I, I went a long story to give you a lot of advice, but it's conversational. It's ha ha and the other thing, have fun, and the audience has fun. Have fun with your material. And by the way, even when your material is not working, have fun with that. Because the audience is scared for you. And if they see you're all right, this didn't work, hey, there's another joke you'll never hear again. <laughs> when, when Johnny Carson used to bomb... The biggest laughs. Of course. Of course. He had fun with it not working. Yeah. And the audience was relaxed with that. Here's see when you're when, when you're a comedian for a lot of years and you walk out on stage and people know who you are, they don't fear for you. They know you're a pro. They know you're gonna get through this. Even if the jokes don't work, they know that they don't fear for you. But when you're brand new and they don't know who you are, they're worried about you. You think they came to hate you, they came to love you, they came to have fun. That's what they put their money down for. So if you're not doing well, they feel very uncomfortable. They, they worry for you. They vicariously sometimes picture themselves up there through you. Oh, my God, what if that was me? So you got to show them, I'm okay. Hey, I'm okay. Whether this works or not, I'm okay. And so you're going to have fun with the material. Have fun with the night. Enjoy the moment. You know? a, lot of, a lot of information there. But information you can use. Uh, now... You know, before you got started, you know, when you got, before you got started on your own, uh, you had a partnership with Tim Reed. Uh, how, how long was that partnership for? Tim Reed and Tom Dreesen were America's first black and white comedy team, and history shows we were the last. There's never been one since, which speaks volumes. Uh, 
more than that we were America's first black and white town meeting. There's never been one since speaks volumes. We, we started out, let, let me give you the story of that. I came out of the service um, and, and, and had been married, had children, and, and, and I was wandering aimlessly, going from job to job. I worked on a loading dock. I was a teamster. I dropped my teamster card. I became a foreman of those teamsters. I, uh, I, I, I was a bartender always at nighttime. I worked construction. I was wandering aimlessly, doing well at what I did, and then leaving that job because I, I felt unfulfilled by all, all that those years. I said, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing, but I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I'd sit in bars at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning with my buddies and look around and say, I don't belong here, but I didn't know where I belong. Mm -hmm. So I would pray. I'd say, God, there must be something I should be doing. Now, comedy was the furthest thing from my mind. I never even thought about it, ever. I joined a civic group called the JCs, Junior Chamber of Commerce. They were a civic group that you... Um, uh, they, they worked on problems of the community, and they were teaching you leadership training program. They taught you how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, how to serve on subcommittees, how to how to get the, the problems in the community resolved, you know, whatever was going on in your community. So they were called Young Men of Action. And I joined the GCC. I got very involved because I grew up poor. I grew up on the streets. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. Amen. I grew up on the streets, you know. Yeah. And so I was going to help other street kids like me, and I did. I did all sorts of programs like that. But then I realized the number one problem in our community at the time, as it is today, was our youth using drugs. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor, a concept I had, um, and, and to make the kids laugh, play some music, and then plant the seeds. Again, I'm praying at this time, God, what is it I'm supposed to be doing? Now, the night I proposed that to the JCs, to run it as a JC project, uh, and, and for them to sanction it, a new kid joined the chapter, a new guy named Tim Reed, who graduated from Norfolk State College, and E.I. Tupac recruited him into Chicago as a marketing rep, and he joined the JCs, and that was his first night there. He came up afterward, and he said, gee, I'd like to work with you on that project. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I already got a guy. I had a white friend named John DeBoer that was going to help me. He said, okay, now the next day, as fate would have it, John DeBoer calls me and said, I can't do this job with you. I got a new job, and I can't do it. I can't do the program with you. I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. I called Tim. We work on, on, on the project, and we go in, and the program becomes number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries, where JCs use it as a model program on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. In those days, they weren't teaching drug education at a college or a high school level, let alone at an elementary school level. So now, uh, one day, the, Tim and I would play off of one another, and the moment I walked in that classroom, I realized what a blessing because the children were integrated. So they saw a young black guy and a young white guy walking in their classroom and boom, we got their attention. And this and is I, around I, and the moment I walked in the classroom. And this I is thought, around, you know, the, the, this is around the late 60s? 68, 1968. Now, in 1969, a little eighth grade girl walking out of the classroom said, you guys are funny, you ought to become a comedy team. Today, I was in my car. I, I got a 49 Cadillac. I was on the south side of Chicago. On the south side. You know, you call Spadesville. Yeah. yeah. I was down there in my car, and, and I was traveling in the direction in which I was proceeding. Yeah, can, can we do something and, funny? I want to do something funny. And I was, I was on a corner right on 47, and it's right over there one of the French restaurants, uh, Jacques in the Box. Yeah. I was, I was standing there in my car, and the policeman came up, he pulled over and he said, he said, get out of the car. Get out of the car. Well, and I, I, said, I said, what are you talking about? And he persuaded me to get out of the car. How do you do that? He put a gun to my head. 
Prozitep. As you know, we stayed together six years. Tim went on to become Venus Flytrap on WKRP Cincinnati. He was just on a show called Sister, Sister. He's been on 20 sitcoms. Yeah. A brilliant director. And, 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 my, and again, my dearest friend in the whole world, his children call me Uncle Tom. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
first of all, in 1975, the team split up after six years. Mm -hmm. In 1975, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You've been on Johnny Carson. And if you haven't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you might want to be a comedian. You might going to be one, but you're not one now. <clears throat> that show, one appearance on that show, Freddie Prince got to sit down the next day. One appearance. There was a pathway. I, my heart aches for the comedians today. <clears throat> There's no pathway to stardom. In those days, pathway for stand-up comedians was that Tonight Show. If you could get to that Tonight Show, and you could sustain and do more Tonight Shows, but you had to get to that Tonight Show. So I, everybody migrated to the West Coast. You know, everybody came out here to the West Coast. And when the team split up, I did, and as well as Tim did, Tim Reed. And, uh, uh, and, and I struggled out here. My wife hated show business. She wanted me out of it. When the team split up, she thought, finally, he's going to give up that crazy dream of his and, 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 and become a, a normal human being like her dad who worked. I don't blame her. She was right. Her dad worked at a factory 40 years, brought a check home every Friday. Right. And, and when she married me, I wasn't a comedian. She didn't marry a comedian. You know, and so all of this, she, she wanted me out of the business. I get on the West Coast. I leave my wife and kids back in Chicago. She ends up writing me a Dear John when I'm out here. I ended up getting back together with him, but at that time, it crushed me. Oh. She said, this is your dream, not mine. I, I wish you all the best, but I'll never move to California, and, and, and goodbye, and, and, uh, and, and good luck. And now, I, I got this dear John, and I was, I was sitting at a woman's home, and then the woman came back, and then I had to leave. I ended up, I thought that I would get discovered at the comedy store right away, but it wasn't happening. I had to, I'd go there every night and sign up. I ended up sleeping in an old Nash Rambler, an abandoned car, back in this woman's, back in this woman's house, and I used to dump her garbage. There was a Nash Rambler up on blocks, and it, it, it's where the front seat came down. And I ended up putting my stuff in. I stayed in that car for over 30 days. I hitchhiked up and down Sunset Boulevard. I'd wash up, up at a gas station every morning. And I'd get to the comedy store begging to work for free every night, just begging to work for free. And finally, I got an audition where Mitchie Shore, the owner of the comedy store, saw me. And, and that audition has got more pressure than the Tonight Show audition because that was the only game in town in those days, the comedy store. Every night, someone was getting discovered at the comedy store. All these shows were looking for comedians, and because comedy was the rock and roll of the '70s, it became hot. And and so, uh, you know, if, if Mitzi Shore didn't like you, it's back, back home, pal. It's Harvey Illinois, mm. because we, you know, there was no other place. To, the improv wasn't out there. None of the things out there, the Laugh Factory, they weren't out there in those days. So it's do or die. That five minutes that I had to do stand up for her, for her approval, she liked me. She said, "Oh, you have stage presence." Well, I've been up with a comedy team for six years, you know, so I had some background there. So anyhow, long story short, I became a regular at the comedy store. It took a long time, you know, to, and then you go from Tuesday night at two in the morning to maybe Wednesday at a seven or eight o'clock spot. And finally, I became one of the regulars and I became one of the stars of the comedy store. I was one of the headliners there. And I badgered the Tonight Show, a guy named Craig Tennis, to come and see me because that was the way to it. Mm -hmm. And finally, he came one night me, and he was looking at me and a new kid named Billy Crystal. I don't know what happened to Billy Crystal, but I'm a... Who? Billy Crystal, I don't know, some kid that was on with me. <laughs> I gotta look him up. Never. <laughs> I'm with Tony Brown and Kenny right now. I wasn't he in that one movie, I think? Which which yeah. one? Which now, one? Billy, <laughs> Billy carved out a great career. He, he's just, he's doing fantastic. And he's still doing fantastic. Oh. I saw him a little while back. Nice. So, but anyhow, nonetheless, finally I get I get that tonight show. Craig Tennis saw me and he said, Okay, come to my office. Um uh, you know, come to my office and, and uh, I saw your material, come to my office tomorrow, we'll talk about it. 
I go to his office, and he was at his desk, and he said, okay, I saw you do 20 minutes. Show me what five you might do if I gave you the tonight show. So I did blank, 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 blank. He said, okay, take that line out. I'll do it again. I'll put another one. He said, okay, you got it. You're on next Tuesday, a week from today. Now, I'm telling everybody back in Chicago. I'm telling all the people back at the Junction Lounge and Harvey and all, all the joints I hang out. I'm going to be on the tonight show. I get there, you put that, <laughs> that, that, that just makes me tingle. I mean, just even saying that, it really does. <laughs> Anyhow, I, I get back to uh, I get back to uh, I, I get to the Tonight Show. They put me in makeup. Mm -hmm. They take you up to your dressing room. You stay up for a while. They bring you down to the green room, and they ran out of time. Oh, we bumped you. Got to come back next week. I go back next week in the green room and and, and the makeup room up. And they ran out of time. Three weeks in a row, I went there. Three weeks in a row, they ran out of time. And, and I want to preface I want to preface to the audience. This is when the Tonight Show ran ninety minutes. Yes, and they they ran out of time. Not, not only ran 90 minutes, 26 million people watched that show. 26 million people a night watched that show. It was, it, 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 again, it, it, it's just move your career. Now, on the fourth time I go there, I'm in the makeup room, and Fred DeCorda, the producer, walks in, and he said, I got bad news for you. I said, what? He said, you're going on tonight. <laughs> <laughs> now, you can lump in your throat about the size of the grapefruit, you know, and, uh, and now... It's time, buddy. Mm -hmm. It's the moment of truth. <laughs> I've heard athletes talk about this for years, about seize the moment. There's a seize the moment time that you, you hit in 142, they're going to send you down to the minors. It's over. Your career's over. This guy gets hurt. That guy gets hurt. All of a sudden, you're up with bases loaded, and this is that moment. You, you get this hit, and you're staying here. You don't get this hit, and it's over. And that's what it was with the Tonight Show. Now, they're bringing me up that long walk from the green room. After I became a veteran, you know, uh, the, the people backstage, hey, Friesen, how's your Cubs? Hey, Friesen, when you, you go back to Chicago? But your first time, the stagehands see you, they all turn their back and say, it's his first time. It's his first time. They're whispering, you know. <laughs> now, you get back behind that curtain, and Doc Severinsen's playing there in commercial break. And Doc Severinsen's playing, and the coordinator said, you okay? And you say, yeah, and he walks away, and you're all alone. Mm. Now, you're, now you're talking to God one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. Oh, God. Oh, God. You brought me this far. Oh, God. Let me, let me be good tonight. God, let it be a hot audience. Now, now you're saying, wait a minute, what's my first line? Oh, shit, I forgot my first line. What's my first line? <laughs> now the music, and the music stops, and your heart stops, because they're back out of commercial. And the white lights come coming through the curtain, and you realize they're back live. And you hear Johnny say, we're back now. And I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight, because my next guest is making his first appearance on The Tonight Show. Well, you're welcome, please, Tom Dreesen. One word, that one line. I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight. He set that audience up. I'm glad you're in such a good mood tonight because my next guest is making his first. They open up the curtain. You walk out. You feel like you're in an operating room. You can't see the audience. They're all in shadows. There's a mark you hit on the floor. You got to get to that mark. And now they're, they're, they're applauding and everything. And they're done. And I got my first joke out and it got a laugh. Then I got my second joke out. It got a laugh. Third joke got applause. And Johnny... Laughing, Johnny and Ed McMahon laughing behind me. Now I'm on a roll, buddy. <laughs> boom, boom. I get eight applause. I got him. Now I'm at the end of, end of this stand-up, and I say, you've been a marvelous audience. This is my first appearance on The Tonight Show, and I, and I want to ask you, if you like me, just if you like me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. <laughs> if you're Catholic, light a candle. I said, show business is a tough life. I said, show business is a tough life. So if you like me and you're Protestant, say a prayer. If you're Catholic, light a candle. If you're Jewish, somebody in your family owns a nightclub. Tell them about me, will you please? And I walk through the curtain.
big applause. Big applause. The coordinator comes running around the corner. I said, Tom, go back. Go back. I said, go back and talk to Johnny. He said, no, don't go talk to Johnny. <laughs> I walk back through the curtain. Johnny Gomel for another bow, and he gives you that little circle. He goes like this. You did it, kid. And you, I, I took that bow. I went back to that curtain, and I have never stopped working since that day. I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. Uh, I, I did over 500 on national television. But that first time, there was a guy, as you pointed out, Tony, a guy in New York named Lee Curlin from CBS. He happened to be watching the show. And the next day, called me. William Morris immediately signed me. Uh, and I couldn't get them. I couldn't walk by William Morris, let alone get in the building. But there you go. Now, uh, William Morris signed me. Um, CBS, signed me to, uh, CBS signed me to a development deal. In those days, my rent was $225 a month. I had gotten my white kids out. I couldn't even make rent money. I'm doing unemployment. My, my, uh, I get a check for $10,000, and then I got $1,850 a month for one year to be on their development deal. Mm-hmm. That meant my rent, my groceries, my kids, my shoes, but I can now concentrate on being a comedian. Immediately, Sammy Davis Jr. took me on the road for three years. Smokey Robinson, Natalie Cole, Gladys Knight, the pitch, James Darren, Frankie Avalon, Matt Davis, Tony Orlando, and Don. Everybody was after me to be their opening act because I could work clean. I, 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 I didn't you know, hurt their audiences and stuff. You know. And then that, all of that eventually led me to Frank Sinatra. This, uh, I mean, and I'll, you know, put, you know, give it to Kenny, uh, you know, to close part one here. Uh, you know, being a comedian and working clean, I mean, you know, and it took you through those levels. I mean, t- discuss that segue where, you know, that also can help you, you know, regarding corporate gigs. I mean, I mean, like, I love, I love the golf story uh, from the Western Open a few years ago. <laughs> I mean, I heard about that one. Yeah, I mean. Uh, it was a small downgrade, but nonetheless, I mean, it, that was, go ahead, please, I'll let you take that story. Oh, you know, it, first of all, in, in those, by the way, I'm, I'm not a prude. I'm a street guy. Right, no, I know, you know, you, you can go there, but, you know, if you don't have to, it, if it's it, funny, it's funny. goes with the best, and I've done it, by the way. Yeah. But I started out in show business, you've got to remember, that's two words, show and business. There was no cable television in those days, so you couldn't work blue, you couldn't work blue. If you want, you're, you're in show business. Okay, I'm a businessman. How do I become discovered in America? Well, you got to do the Tonight Show. Well, how do I get on the Tonight Show? You watch comedians on the Tonight Show. You had the right material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. You had the right universal material that you know could make everybody laugh. By the way, even those days in Vegas and all those places like that, they didn't want blue comedians. There might be a late night lounge. Right. Red Fox could work as blue as he wanted to work, mm-hmm. but it would say outside, triple X rated show, adult show. But the, the point of that is, there was a time when Red Fox had a hot series, and he was making like $25,000 a week at the Hacienda, and Bob Newhart had a series, and he was making $150,000 a week at Caesars. Because mm. family audiences could go in there, you know what I mean? So there was a greater demand in those days. Right. Today, you can work as filthy as you want. I see women doing stuff that would make red thoughts. <laughs> I That's see women right. doing blue material. <laughs> and, and by the way, I'm, again, again, I'm not a prude, you know, but, but I, it, was a, it was a business decision for right. me to, to, I, hey, you know, I love Richard. Me and Richard Pryor got along so good. I, I had an album out I did in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy is Crazy. Yes, I've, I've heard it. Richard, Richard wanted me to call it That Honky's Crazy. I said, well, no brother ever called me honky. And Harvey, they call me white boy. I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. I played football on an all-black football team. And they, they never call me. They say, hey, white boy, come here. White boy, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, even to this day, if I go back home and they're in an argument at the Junction Lounge, which isn't there anymore, but 
We were in an argument in some bar again. No, man, I scored two touchdowns on White Boy. was that White Boy, come here. Get over here. They still don't call me Tom. I was 12 years old and I thought my name wasn't White Boy, you know. But it was an affectionate term, you know. But anyhow, Richard Pryor's a classic example. Richard Pryor worked clean for years. He did the Ed Sullivan show clean. He did like 40 Merv Griffin shows clean, you know. And then one day he decided to go the other way. But and by that time, cable's out and you can work as blue as you want, you know. And, and anyhow, that's the end of that story. Mr. Smooth, Mr. Smooth, you got something? Uh, I want to point out, you you tell the Johnny Carson story and related to athletics where you have that one shot, that one shot to make that one kill, that one opportunity. And there are those out there that call that luck. And I want you to know, Tom, that I think you just really solidified the definition of luck for me. I've been told the definition of luck is preparation meets opportunity. And I think you pretty well hit it on the head there. You had the opportunity. You sat through three no-goes, and then they come in and give you the bad news that, oh, you're going on, kid. It's on. You're going to go hit the Johnny Carson stage right now. And you're right, your heart is pounding out of your absolute chest. I can imagine. I got goosebumps and tears in my eyes when you told this story just now. I'm being sincere. But you were also prepared for that opportunity in that you now, you get to be lucky and tell jokes for the rest of your career and go open for Sinatra and all of these other fabulous cats. It was that one moment, but you were prepared, and I think that's the secret sauce, in my opinion. Would you agree, being prepared for that opportunity? I say this all the time to comedians. What good is a break if you're not ready when the break comes? What good is a break if you're not ready when the break comes? You know, uh, and, and, and I prepare and prepared and prepared and prepared. Night after night after night, nights of four people in the audience at two o'clock in the morning, nights with 150 people in the audience. You know that, but I, I, I you know, I, I, again, I prepared, and when when I got that opportunity, you know, I, I tell actors sometimes, you know, you know, you're not acting for six months, and you're gonna get the, your agent's gonna call you and go read for a part, and you think you're gonna be ready. You should be going to acting classes. I don't care what kind of a great actor you are. If you're not working for six, seven months, go to acting classes. Read scenes. Read scenes with other actors. Newer actors, older actors. Stay prepared. Because tomorrow, your agent might say, get over there right away. There's a role made for you. And you're going to say, I haven't read a script in six months. I haven't done a scene in six months. No, you just came from acting class Tuesday night. You're ready. What good is a break if you're not ready when the break comes? And, uh, and, and, and again, that kind of dedication... In any endeavor, in, in, in any endeavor, you, you, you know, it's, it's how bad you want it. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, 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 it's when you find, if you're lucky enough to find the work that you love, that you can make a living in the work you love to do, man, cherish that and protect that. You know, hey, I'm 51 years in show business. Do you know what I do when I come off the road? I go straight to the Laugh Factory on weekends. And I get up on stage. You know why? Because you know who's in that audience? Young black, young white, young Latino, young Asian. I want to stay in touch with that audience. My material, you know, and I'm on the the young hot guys. You know, I'm the old guy in the group. Always the oldest guy in the group. But I still get up there and I'll do 20 minutes with all of them. Because I I want to stay sharp. I want to stay keep my timing sharp. I want to keep my, you know, my delivery. And also, 
the other thing is, I don't think you can survive as a comedian over the years if you're not also a good writer. Now, if you've got a lot of money, you can maybe buy jokes, but there aren't a lot of good people out there who buy jokes, I mean, who write good jokes for stand-ups. There's a lot of writers that can write sitcom. I call them tees. You know, <laughs> you know, on a sitcom, you can say, close that door, and you're, ha, 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 I just came in, ha, ha, ha. Those are what I call tees. When you're a stand-up comedian, brother, you better have some guffaws. Mm. You better have guffaws. You know, when you walk out on that stage and you're all alone out there, they ain't looking for tees. They're looking for guffaws, you know. I'm a guffaw guy. I'm a guffaw man, no doubt, no doubt. We are going to have part two of this extraordinary interview with Mr. Tom Dreesen right after this. Okay, Tom, uh, if you want to, you know, take a restroom break. Uh, Kenny's going to get you on his on his link, and we can do the next 45 minutes. Uh, I, we really appreciate it. So, whatever you want. What do you guys call it? I'm, I'm, I'm cool. Okay, uh, Kenny, uh, you, you uh, give us a call and, get, and hook us up, okay? I'll do my best after I take my restroom break as well. Okay, five minutes. All right. Song, let me sing forevermore. You know what I hear? I, I got another one here. I'm here. Hold on. I'll pick I'll pick pick one here. Nobody interpreted lyrics like him. I can explain that. Why? I believe it wasn't well, was uh, talk it out. Uh, let's look hold on here. I've got you under my skin.
Oh my god, I mean, that backup of his for all the decades, I mean, and, you know, and he's, he's, he's the headliner, but, I mean, without those instruments, without those players, oh, that, that layer. You only hired the best. Oh, you only hired the best. I believe. He, he, Nelson Little, he always told me, Nelson Little told him that, that Frank always believed the lyrics are out front, and Nelson Little agreed with him. The orchestra is a backdrop, uh-huh. a marvelous backdrop. He only hired the best. Why I was, you know, so thrilled to be his opening act for 14 years, because he only wanted the best around him. You know, he, 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 and he emphasized that, you know, and, and that he thought that, well, we'll talk about that. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Because we do have. We've got a chunk of. We got to dedicate to the to the legend. Legend. Legends. No doubt. You can do whatever you. You can talk wherever you want to go. I'll go anywhere you want to go. Oh no! Thank you. Thank you. But I mean, but you know, as far as the orchestras, I mean, just I mean, Cal Basie, Quincy Jones. I mean, just. Yeah. Oh. I sat in on a recording of him, Quincy on L.A. It's My Lady. I was in New York. And I sat in every night at the recording. Frank liked to record in front of uh, uh, people. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he liked to have people in the audience so he could sing to them, you know. And Quincy and him watching them two together, it was great. And Q, Q's a, a top-notch guy, you know. And, and But they, these are these great musical minds and, and how they got in sync. And and, uh, and if, if Q said something to Frank, he picked up on it. Frank said something to Q. They both knew, you know, they both knew what they were talking about, you know. Oh, my goodness. This is amazing to watch the great artists work, you know. You know, it really is. I mean, I. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I got all this from my great grandfather. I mean, on the south side, just. I mean, as a little kid. I mean, like starting it as young as four. I mean, just it, there was television and there was music that I was allowed to uh, to take in, and it included. I mean, I got to stay up with him to watch Johnny Carson. So, okay, ninety minutes. All right. You know, if I can hang on a Friday night, I would stay. I would stay up. So. You know, who knows if I might have seen you. I mean, like with Tim Reed, I probably watched the episode of him on Fernwood Tonight with my great-grandfather, like, back in 77, 78. And, I mean, I probably did. And, and I, you know, and dab YouTube and watch this stuff now. I mean, just, I mean, I, I, I always have the reminders of my great-grandfather. I mean, like, he left in uh, 40 years ago, but he's still fresh with me. I mean, like, he, I carry yeah. with the, with me every day. I mean... Cubs. I mean, that's how he got me. Cubs fan, him. So, yeah. you were not the only Southside Cubs fan. <laughs> I got to tell you, I didn't know. I was five years old listening to the Cub games on the radio. Six years old. So I didn't realize I was in enemy territory. By the time I'm six years old, I'm a Cub fan. By the time I was eight years old, I could take a punch. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I'm with you. I think Kenny... I hated Cub fans. Oh, I know. Oh, God. It... It, and you know what? Of all the years, this would be the year that they both play in the World Series and they don't play in Chicago around no fans. I like that's perfect. I'm like, are you kidding?
Because men get nervous. They really, men get nervous when you get near the family jewels. They, and by the way, I don't know what guy came up with that name for that part of our anatomy, the family jewels. I mean, it's not like your wife has a beautiful evening gown on. Honey, going out tonight? Would you like to wear my balls around your neck? <laughs> but it's a sensitive area for us. In baseball, I don't know if you know this or not, in 1871 in baseball, men start wearing the cup to protect the family jewels. In 1971, it became mandatory in baseball to wear a helmet. It took men 100 years to realize the brain is important also. <laughs> Women are always saying, you men couldn't stand the pain of childbirth. You, you men have no idea of the pain of childbirth. You couldn't stand that pain. Men could get pregnant. They won't want disability from the moment of conception. Couldn't stand that pain. Women have no idea the pain a man experiences when he gets a good swift kick in the nuts. You know what I'm talking about, guys? Because I have heard women a year after childbirth say, it might be nice to have another baby. <laughs> have you ever heard a man say, have another good swift kick in the nuts. Listen for part two coming soon. Bye-bye.